Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. We have been working through a series of podcasts focused on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. How did the Pentateuch become so central to the Jewish faith, Alan? Why, why does the rest of the Old Testament feel like it's of sort of secondary importance, or is it? That's an interesting question. Um, first of all, we need to understand that the Pentateuch basically would be referred to by the Jews and by Christians as the books of Moses because of the traditional view that that Moses was instrumental in putting them together, and in fact, even in writing all of them. That is, uh, I mean, that's somewhat open to debate, but uh, but their importance, I think, stems from the fact that they are, in first instance, they're an introduction uh, to the books of the Bible. That is to say, they set the foundation, uh, they, they alert the reader as to the nature, character of God, and who God is, and, and um, how he... Uh, interacts with the human race. Uh, basically, God is defined in these books in a way that establishes the, the basic criteria for all theological understanding. And then in the second instance, you know, they, they are the books of the law because they're heavy on, on legal um, requirements, uh, which forms the very basis of Judaic faith. And um, the Jews are, of course, at odds to obey the laws as best they can, and in fact, uh, they have developed an entire commentary on each of these laws, expanding them beyond um, their original setting in what we call the Mishnah, and that's basically, you know, how, how one uh, acts out these various laws. So they became of vital importance to the Jewish uh, faith. So in that sense, the Pentateuch, because of its foundational nature, because it introduces us to the nature, character, and wonder of God. Uh, defines him in many ways, and also the legal requirements of, uh, that, that they set forth that become very, very important. And indeed, uh, much of the remaining part of the Old Testament, in some ways, is, um, I wouldn't say a commentary, but certainly uh, some kind of expansion, if you will, of the Pentateuch. Um, the books uh, that follow the Pentateuch, the historical books of the Old Testament, beginning with Joshua, they basically take the themes of the, of the Pentateuch. We've talked about the two essential aspects of human nature and understanding in our relationship with God, what we call the theology of the call, which uh, we've, we have derived from the call of Abraham, and the theology of, uh, of the serpent, which we derive from uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, the theology of call is based upon the trusting this God uh, who has revealed himself, uh, having faith in that God, being obedient uh, in response to that faith, and being blessed as a result. And the theology of the serpent, uh, the distrust of this God and of his revelation, the subsequent disobedience leading to the curse. Now, these two themes are going to run through the entire Old Testament narrative, and you're going to be able to trace them through the historical books. When the people were obedient, when they trusted God, uh, they were blessed. They were able to, to win battles and what have you. Um, when they uh, did not trust, when they reneged on their commitment, when they disobeyed, uh, then they lost battles. And, and, and one sees that through the entire um, historical books, uh, 
and particularly through the books of Kings and Chronicles. Uh, then you have the prophetic books, which essentially are calling the people back to, to obedience. They are a kind of expansion of the Pentateuch in many ways. So much of the Old Testament, I mean, I certainly wouldn't call it secondary because, you know, it's all God's word and each functioning in a different capacity. Uh, but certainly they all rely upon the Pentateuch. And one would even, you know, make that claim, I think, in the wisdom writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song Solomon. So basically uh, the, the Pentateuch, they are primary in a very real sense. Uh, they're really very important in establishing a baseline uh, of Old Testament theology and in fact biblical theology in general because I would even argue that um, the New Testament in many ways is, a, is an outgrowth of, um, of the witness of the Old Testament. The New Testament is, is exactly that. There's something new about it, but at the same time it builds upon the understanding of the revelation of God as it is outlined in the Old Testament, and in particular, I think, in the books of the Pentateuch. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, we've explored Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Now it's on to Numbers. Numbers is a strange name for a book. Can you tell us why it's called Numbers? It is a very strange name for a book. Simply called Numbers because Moses takes a census of the people. He numbers them uh, by tribe. And um, he does that at the beginning and the end of the book. And uh, he organizes the Israelite camp as they prepare to enter the promised land. And so he, he basically numbers them. But, you know, I really prefer the Hebrew name for the book, which is not Numbers. Uh, Hebrew books often begin just with the first words of the book. And uh, in chapter 1, um, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. That's how the book begins. And so the Hebrews call this, the Hebrew name for this book is simply the In the Wilderness book. Oh. And I like that. Hmm. Um, in the wilderness, it basically, the, in Hebrew it begins, In the wilderness God spoke. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. I like that. And Numbers becomes a story of how a rabble number of ex-slaves becomes a, a fledgling nation ready to occupy the promised land, given to them, promised to them by God. So, um, yeah, Numbers. I, I agree with you. It's, uh, it's a strange name, but a <laughs> fascinating book. Um, can you give us a bit of a summary of the book? Yeah, um, while the opening chapters appear rather perfunctory because they are numbering the tribes, their arrangement, the arrangement even of those uh, can be intriguing and the stories that follow engaging. If I might just uh, whet one's appetite, uh, there's, the, the, there's the thing about um, the, the nation complaining about manna. You know, there's only so many things you can do with manna. God was giving them manna to eat. You know, you can, you can boil manna, you can fry manna, you can grill manna, you can have manna souffle, perhaps. <laughs> but, you know, there's only so much. And so they began to complain and they said, you know, this is not good enough, God. We want meat to eat. And so in the 11th chapter, you've got God saying, you want meat? Okay, I'll give you meat. I'll mm -hmm. give you so much meat, it'll come out your nostrils and your ears. So, I mean, there's good humor uh, in, that, in that regard. There are lots of family squabbles uh, in it. Um, you know, there's a time when Aaron and Miriam gang up against Moses, and Miriam, of course, becomes leprous as a result of that. And then you've got the report of the, of the spies. And uh, when, they, when they were uh, sent into the Promised Land, um, 
they came back with a bunch of grapes, you know, and they carried on a, on a rod between two men had to carry. The grapes were so luscious and so large and, and the cluster so big. That even today is the national emblem of the Israeli tourist board, um, which is kind of oh. interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and then you've got the, uh, you know, the, the sense that oh, we, the, the people are too big here, you know, and they're, they're the Nephilim. Um, and so you have coming back from the, uh, the spies, you've got a majority report and a minority report with Caleb and Joshua giving the minority report. And, and then finally, you know, at, at one point you have the death of the 10 spies, the, the majority report, basically all of those spies pass away. And then when they realize that, uh, when the people realize that they should have occupied the land when they had the opportunity, and Moses said, no, uh, you missed the opportunity. Of course, they go ahead and, and attack anyway, and they're repulsed. So there are lots of kind of fascinating stories. You've got Korah's rebellion, you know, and he, uh, he rebels against Moses and God and is swallowed up in the earth, and then subsequent fire to those who rebelled with him, and a plague that is brought upon the people, and 14,700 people die. Hmm. Numbers will also tell us about the beginning of an established priesthood. It will recount the deaths of Miriam and of Aaron, and, and Moses, that wonderful message of uh, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness uh, and shouting to the people, look and live, which, by the way, is the emblem of the medical profession uh, right. today. And perhaps one of the stories that I love most is the story of Balak and, um, and Balaam, you know, uh, when Balak, king of Moab, or prince of Moab, uh, sees the people of Israel coming through his land, you know, he wants to stop them, and so he calls uh, Balaam to stop them. And God basically tells Balaam not to go. And eventually, you know, he gives him permission to go, and uh, he gets on his donkey, and you've got that marvelous story of, of the donkey speaking to Balaam, uh, because it kept wandering off the path, and uh, he kept beating it. And inevitably, you know, Balaam would not curse the people. Um, Balak said, and I curse these people. And Balaam said, no, I can't curse that which God has blessed. And, and Balak ca carried him off to one corner where he could only see some of the tribes. And he said, okay, if it's too many to curse, you know, curse these few tribes here. With the idea, of course, of cursing just, you know, incremental amounts until the, all the people were cursed. But Balaam constantly repeated the thing, I cannot curse that which God has blessed. Now, that's a marvelous story. He said, the reason I can't curse them is because there's the shout of a king in their midst. Hmm. Now, just think about that. I, I cannot curse that which God has blessed, for there is the shout of a king in their midst. And the king, of course, was Yahweh, was the Lord. Yeah. And he could not curse. You know, it, because the people were rejoicing and, and honoring their king, um, they became invulnerable. Now there's a lesson for us. So this is really a marvelous book, even despite its name. Okay, well, uh, can you give us an overall perspective of the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I would divide the book into three major sections. Chapters 1 through uh, 10, or halfway through 10, verse 10, I would call uh, the time when they were at Sinai. And then from chapter 10, verse 11, through chapter 21, uh, would be the wilderness wandering. And then 22, through the end of the book, 36, uh, would be the time when they were in Moab. 
And then the interesting thing about each of these divisions is that um, the first one, the, the first 10 chapters, if I can go as far as 10, chapter 10, verse 10, that basically is preparation for them entering the land. And, and would be, I could divide it again into uh, the first two chapters, which is the numbering, the military preparation, and chapters 3 through 10, which I would call the, the spiritual uh, preparation. Now, interestingly, you know, we, we always, uh, as we look at the scriptures inductively, if you see two chapters uh, given to something and uh, eight chapters uh, given to something, um, the same kind of thing, one military preparation, one spiritual preparation. One always says, why would a writer give more attention to one than the other? And of course, we would want to deduce from that that the spiritual preparation basically outweighed the military preparation. Right. After all, it was four times as long, the, the spiritual preparation. And, and in the course of that spiritual preparation, is the celebration of the Passover itself in chapter 9, which was the great event, of course, that brought Israel out of Egypt. So essentially what we're doing here is in these chapters, the opening section of the book, the people are reliving the theology of the Exodus. They're reminding themselves of all that God had done. And they were trusting this God. They were hearing again the revelation. They were trusting this God, and they were, they were following up with obedience um, in understanding that they would be blessed to enter the land of promise. And so there's, there's your theology of call. Mm. So, so the first 10 chapters basically are preparation, military and, and spiritual. The second major section then would, would run from the 11th verse of chapter 10 through chapter 21, which is the wilderness wandering. And the wilderness wandering is full. You know, that's the time they send out the spies. That's the time that, that, that um, Kara rebels and so forth. And there are numerous rebellions. And so what, what we see here is actually a contrast between that section and the first section. So you have, while the first section is reliving the theology of the Exodus, what you have essentially in, in the second section through chapter 21 is a denial of the Passover event and the undoing of the spiritual preparation uh, because they, they don't trust. You know, they send the spies in and God says, you know, I'm going to give you this land. They said, no, Lord, the people are too big. You know, we see the Nephilim. Um, it's just too, it's going to be too difficult. We're not, we, we don't think this is a good idea. So, so what you have here is the rise of theology of serpent combating the theology of call in the first section. Mm. Then in chapter 22, as they move into the, uh, the land of Moab, you know, the, the opportunity to enter the land is gone. And so um, in these remaining chapters, you have them starting all over again. And again, you have an emphasis on the spiritual. The spiritual becomes primary once more in the life of the people. So, uh, so this, to give you that, that overall perspective would be essentially three major sections, spiritual preparation, chapters 1 through 10, Wilderness Wandering, chapter 10 through 21, and then Land of Moab and Reorganization um, in chapters 22 through 36. How much time passes from chapters 1 through 36, do you think? A great deal of time. I mean, I think what you have here is you're going to have uh, the death of an entire generation before they're ready to enter the land again. 
and the generation, of course, is 40 years. Mm-hmm. So the, the wandering in the wilderness is now going to cost them uh, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is a consequence of their disobedience that will essentially, as they begin all over again, they now will be deprived of entering the land for some 40 years until the entire generation of those who, didn't, who distrusted and, and were disobedient pass away. And the first section is approximately how much time? The first 10 chapters? Basically, it's the spiritual preparation. That would not have taken too long at all. Numbering the people, you know, would be a matter of, uh, of days or weeks. Uh, the spiritual preparation would have been a matter of uh, weeks or months. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, basically, this is the remaining time that they had at Sinai. Uh, as, they were, as they now were gearing towards leaving Sinai, and casting their eyes on the promise of God. But when they got the opportunity, they didn't seize it. Hmm. Was there anything special in the way the nation was preparing to enter the promised land? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, what I want to say is that it's crucial to understand that the preparation is seen in two arenas. This military preparation, chapters 1 and 2, and the spiritual preparation in chapters 3 to ten, because in the military preparation, what you have in these first two chapters is they're taking stock of their own resources. That's always a problem, by the way, but that's, you know, mm. that's what they were doing, essentially. They were numbering this, the, the people so that they would know what kind of size of army they would be able to muster uh, to fight the battle. So they were taking stock of their own resources, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but at the same time, if it's out of kilter, then it's bad. And it isn't out of kilter because it's only two chapters compared to the opening ten chapters. Because in chapters three and four, they take, they're taking stock not of their own resources, they're taking stock of their spiritual leadership in chapters three and four. Mm-hmm. And then in chapters five, six, seven, and eight, you've got, uh, they're consecrating themselves in preparation. So this is all very highly spiritual. Uh, and then in chapter 9, you have this rehearsal, if you will, of the Passover celebration. And, and basically, that is a reliving of their deliverance from Egypt. And it involves two things. It involves remembering and it involves trusting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in a sense, yes, um, this, is, this was very important as they prepared. Um, taking stock of, of their resources, uh, you know, chapters 1 and 2. But far more importantly, taking stock of spiritual leaders, consecrating themselves, reliving their deliverance, remembering the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and trusting he was going to do it again. Hmm. That's, uh, I think that, that really summarizes the, the early, uh, these early chapters, the first 10 chapters of the book. Well, and that's obviously the reliving and Remembering peace is very important considering what had happened with the calf, the golden calf, earlier. Exactly. It's probably a, yeah, a lesson that yeah, Moses yeah. learned and said, okay, let's, let's, uh, every so often we're going to have to do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it, it's true of human nature, I think, you know. Uh, what the hymnist writes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and uh, take and seal it to thy courts above or something of that nature but i i think you know the, the hymnist got it right there's there is within us um that um that prone to wander we're just like a bunch of dumb sheep you know 
um, and we're just we're off doing our own thing. And, and, and we're going to see that more fully in the book of Numbers, but it's exactly right with the golden calf. I mean, exactly right. And the lesson that had to be learned there, I mean, just before they could, before they could, before they could build the tabernacle. And again, the uh, official name of the book is not Numbers, it's... In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness, yeah. And oftentimes, isn't it true, oftentimes that, that we find ourselves in the wilderness... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in a, in because a very, we wander. Yeah. I mean, I think there's in a very real sense when humankind were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Where did we go? We, we went to the land of Nod. Mm. Uh, we were expelled to the land of Nod. And in a real philosophical sense, I believe that we still are wandering in the land of Nod. You know, and there's no escape from the land of Nod. And I think we try, humankind try to escape it through all kinds of activities, through entertainment, through drugs, through relationships. I mean, some of which are good and some of which are not, um, but they're all attempts at escaping and, and we can never get out of the land of Nod. We're always wandering in the wilderness. And that's why God sent his son, mm. because he knew there was no way out. Right. He sent his son in order that we might escape, that we might escape the in the wilderness. Yeah. And for more on that, listen to the Ecclesiastes podcast, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what went wrong? Why were they not able to occupy the land? Well, um, that basically brings us into the, the second major section from chapters 10 to 21, which is a story of rebellion in, in so many ways. Unfortunately, there's a growing dissatisfaction on the part of the people, which results in, in disbelief, which uh, results in rebellion. And, you know, in chapter 11, we pick up uh, the kind of boredom um, that the people are experiencing with, with the manna, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it isn't good enough that they're being fed. Um, you know, they want meat. <laughs> and again and again, you know, one reads the fact that they were, oh, we wish Moses had never brought us up out of the land of Egypt kind of attitude. Yeah. So, you know, you have this, this boredom setting in and then the conflicts uh, that follow uh, that in chapter 12. And then you have the, the, the spies being sent into the land um, in chapters 13 and, and 14. And, and again, you know, you have from the spies what, what I call a majority report and a minority report. And the majority report, 10 of the 12 spies basically, you know, go in there and they're awed. I mean, it's, they, they all say, all 12 say, this is a great land. What a great promise God has made for us. Mm -hmm. How wonderful this is going to be. But, but 10 of them say, you know, but the people who occupy it, they're, they're giants already, you know. <laughs> and there's no way that we're going to be able to beat them. Or to, you know, the, the fact that they've forgotten that God has just redeemed them, delivered them from the greatest power in the ancient world, uh, the power of Egypt, right. you know? And so they basically, their, their majority report is, we're not able to do this. And the minority report, two of the ten, Joshua and Caleb, basically say, yeah, we are able to do this. We can do this because, you know, God is on our side. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why uh, Joshua becomes the uh, successor to, to Moses. Uh, and of course, you know, it, as is true in most democratic societies, it is the majority report, unfortunately, uh, in this instance anyway, that is accepted. And the majority report is, is simply tossed. And the majority report is essentially distrusting this God who has revealed himself and the promise that he's made. They basically don't believe it. And so what you have then is this this negation of the first major, major section of the book, chapters 1 to 10, it, it just, it, they just negate it. It's a reversal 
of the preparation and a denial of the Passover. So, you know, essentially military considerations become more important than spiritual considerations. And I think that's significant. Remember I said that in, in the first section, there's only two chapters for military preparation. There's eight chapters for spiritual preparation. And here, you know, after, after going through those 10 chapters, here we are with the spies bringing in this majority report, essentially making military considerations greater than all the spiritual preparations. Therefore, in, in, in a very real sense, it's a denial of the Passover event hmm. and a, a perfect illustration of the theology of the serpent. Uh, and then, you know, you've got uh, the rebellions of uh, chapters 16, 17, 18, 19. Repeatedly, people are saying, you know, we wish Moses had not brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You have Korah's rebellion in chapter 16. You have uh, the lack of provisions uh, in chapter 20, uh, the death of, of, of loved ones. I mean, important people, the family of Moses. Uh, he loses his sister Miriam. He loses his brother Aaron in chapter 20. He loses his own health and the health of the, of the nation. Um, so you've got in chapter 21 a lot of struggles and battles. Um, you know, it's, it's um, interesting reading and then... Then this great plague that takes over the people that is, that is killing them. And, um, and Moses is instructed to, uh, to build the brazen serpent. And I love the story. Don't we all love that story of Moses building the brazen serpent? Because these people had been bitten by serpents. And he holds aloft the brazen serpent. And he cries to the people, look and live. Mm. So, yeah. Chapters uh, 10 through 21, the wilderness wanderings, are, I mean, they're, they're quite, uh, there's quite a variety there with the growing dissatisfaction and the rebellion of the people and, and yet always the possibility of redemption held out towards the end with the brazen serpent. So I, I would even say that section comes to an end with the story of the brazen serpent and, and, and a kind of illustration of hope even in the midst of, uh, of the people's rebellion. There's a lot of... Uh, rebellion and judgment uh, throughout this. Uh, is there any good news in the book? Uh, how does it turn out? Is it oh, all's well that ends well? <laughs> That's why there's a third section. You know, it's, uh, it reminds me of one of my old professors who um, used to say that even when you're talking about sin from the pulpit, always remember to leave your people with good news. Mm. And I think... Um, the book of Numbers is basically in these final chapters, the final, what, 15 chapters of the book. You have this marvelous story of Balaam. And, and you know, I, I think in many ways that's the beginning of, uh, of something really wonderful that you begin to see in the book, emerging from the book. And therefore, this ability to start over again with the nation gaining a new perspective. And, and the interesting thing for me is that the blessing... <laughs> Uh, I mean, the blessing doesn't come from any expected source, does it? Right. And, and, and I mean, it comes from an unexpected source, and, and it occupies, oh my goodness, what, uh, 22, 23, 24, 25, it occupies four chapters, this story of, of, uh, of Balaam. So these are, I think the story of Balaam is, is really functions, really, really important in this as we morph into the third section of the final section of the book with, with Balaam refusing uh, to, to curse 
what God has blessed. You know, obviously Balak, the prince of Moab, was concerned about the people coming through his land. Now, now, ironically, Moses just simply wanted to go through the land in order to accomplish entrance into the promised land of God. But, um, I mean, they weren't going to settle in Moab per se, but, but the fact that you have, you know, an entire nation walking through your territory, Balak was, was very concerned, and that's why he wanted it stopped. And, you know, he had heard, I mean, as, as the kings of, uh, of, the, of the Transjordan, uh, well knew that you know they had heard of this nation that had basically defeated the power of Egypt to exodus to exit from that country, and were marching you know uh, up and towards their territory. Um, so you, one can understand the the anxiety Balak exhibited and and sought for uh, the prophet Balaam to come and curse the people. Yeah, and you're not talking about a small group of people either. No, we're not. Uh, because again, you know, that's the book of Numbers. They were numbered. <laughs> and there was a great many of them in all the tribes, the 12 tribes, and they were organized, you know, around the tabernacle in the center of the of the camp. Um, hmm. I mean, it's a marvelous picture. And, and the huge number of folk who would have been, would have been marching there. Um, I would say, you know, that you'd... Uh, more than two million people, one would suggest something in that nature. I mean, quite a number of folk uh, going through the land. So, and, and the fact that Balaam, of course, kept refusing the entreaty of Balak. You know, I, I think the one thing that often is missing today, if I, if I might be so bold as to suggest this, I wish with all my heart that, um, that the Church of Jesus Christ today would have the shout of a king in our midst because when you have the shout of a cane in your midst you become invulnerable and um, invincible in essence to acknowledge that that Jesus Christ is king over all I mean that's that's essentially what Balaam was saying about the people of God I can't I cannot curse that which God has blessed and so that blessing comes from a source other than uh, a prophet of Yahweh I mean, he's not an Old Testament prophet. He was a pagan prophet, and and yet God had spoken to him, and he knew instinctively that that something was very special about these people. And the thing that was special, as he perceived it, was this shout of a king. And so what you have is, with this unexpected blessing, you have a new beginning, chapter 26. And new leadership is being appointed, so the people are refocusing uh, their their efforts. Chapter 27, you have a rediscovering of uh, spirituality in chapters 28, 29, and 30. And then, then as a result of that, you know, you've again the theology of call being um, exhibited. Then you've got... Um, they begin to experience victory in their battles in, in chapter 31. Uh, they promise fidelity to God in chapter 32. They... They rejoice again at retelling the story of their deliverance in chapter 33. They claim God's promises in chapter 34. They obey God's laws in chapter 35 and 36. And so, you know, and, and, and Joshua by this time, of course, in this appointing of new leaders, is, uh, succeeds Moses. And Moses is going to be buried um, like Nebo. But again, what you have here in this last section, you asked basically... Is there any good news in this book? Yes, there is a lot of good news because we have again the primacy of the spiritual over the material, over the military, a rediscovery of what is really important. And I think, you know, if today we, we could capture that, wouldn't that be wonderful? 
because we live in a material world, we think materially, and we acknowledge the spiritual, you know, maybe maybe on a Sunday, maybe maybe more than that, maybe in our, you know, devotional lives. Um, but to begin to realize that uh, that the material really fades from view in the light of the spiritual, that we live in a spiritual world. And Paul, of course, talks about that in Corinthians, you know, this these light uh, afflictions are but for a moment. Right. While they work within us something of eternal value. While we look, he says, not to the things that we can see, but to the things that we can't see. For what we see is temporal. But what we can't see, those are the things that are eternal. Mm. That's the message of, of the book of Numbers. Interesting. Uh, they wander around for 40 years and not... They don't travel much distance, do they? I mean, you got two million people-ish, <laughs> no, they uh, but they don't go very far. No, they don't. They don't. It's a lot of wandering. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It is. Um, yeah. Much ado about nothing, I think. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. But again, you know, I think the lesson is that chapters 28 to 36, this recapturing of the spiritual, takes us back to chapters 3 through 10, the spiritual preparation. It takes us back to reliving the, the theology of the Exodus. It takes us back to understanding that this is a God who is trustworthy. Uh, this is a God whom we can obey. And if we trust and obey, then we will be blessed. And so, yeah, there's a sense in which the book ends up where it begins, and I acknowledge that. But, you know, but but the lessons that we've learned, I mean, in between, I think, are incalculable. Yeah. You know, either we're going to do this, either we're going to either we're going to trust, and I and I tend to think that life is one long lesson of learning to trust. Right. You know, learning to trust God. You know, am I really in this, or am I not? Am I going to try to find my own way through life? Or am I going to trust this God? Am I going to just lay my life bare before him and, and let him have his way with me? I think that's the lesson of numbers. Yeah, so they, yeah, they end up where they started. But maybe, maybe they've learned something that will change. And, I, and you know, as we go into the book of Deuteronomy, um, we'll see if that's the case or not. Yeah, and Hebrews 11 is a great reminder of the uh, God that we can trust. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, chapters. I love, I love that. It's a, it is. Yeah, it's a great chapter. We often have to be reminded of the things that God has done for us so that we can move forward and trust and obey. Mm -hmm. um, great words. Thank you, Alan. As you said, our tour of the Pentateuch wraps up on our next podcast um, with an inductive look at Deuteronomy. Tell us about that a little bit. A little teaser on that. Well, Deuteronomy, of course, means the second giving of the law. And in essence, the book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon that Moses himself preaches. And at the end of the book, of course, you have the death and burial of Moses. He's going to call us through his sermon to various things, I think, that are not only to the law itself and to obedience of the law, but um, to give us an understanding of what real theology is all about. And it emerges from this uh, incredible message that comprises the pages of the book of Deuteronomy. So it's a really, really good book. Well, a strong wrap-up to our voyage here through the Pentateuch. Uh, please join us for the final installment of this enlightening series. And don't forget to share your thoughts, comments, and questions 
on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.